Hello, and welcome to Character in Action, the official podcast for the Seven Degrees of Change Foundation. My name is Matthew J. Norcross, and I'll be your host as we have the privilege of talking with decision makers from our community and beyond who are living examples of character traits of the Seven Degrees of Change, which are empathy, respect, responsibility, fairness, trustworthiness, caring, and citizenship. These guests are willing to come in and explain how they live and show others by example to be a phoenix. These character traits serve as a basis of a book series I authored called The Phoenix, as well as a correlating character education curriculum developed in association with High Point University. Today's guest is Eric Ulan, a political advisor whose resume dates back to 1996. He is currently a commissioner for the U.S. Commission for International Rela- Religious Freedom sorry, and a member of the Board of Advisors for the Center for Constitutional Liberty. Before that, he served as the Acting Undersecretary of State for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights at the U.S. Department of State from 2020 to 2021, and the Acting Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Organization Affairs in 2020, in addition to numerous other positions. He is a graduate of the University of San Francisco, earning a Bachelor of Arts degree in History, and was also a Vice President of the Duberstein Group. Mr. Yulin joins us now via telephone in our nation's capital. Eric, we appreciate the time that you're taking to be with us today. You're here because you are a phoenix, a living example of character in action. So before we get started, please tell our listeners about yourself. Well, thanks very much for the time today and the courtesy of being with you. I very much appreciate it. So I'm a West Coast kid born and raised in Portland, Oregon, attended college in San Francisco, came out to Washington, D.C. right after I graduated to work for a magazine called the American Spectator. Spent about a Written year for them before. Yes. So once or twice, I'm sure. Back then, it was a large tabloid magazine. My first job there was working in the mailroom. So every morning, I'd pick up the direct mail, open it, see what sort of submissions we got from readers and potential uh, folks who might subscribe. Uh, and then had a chance to work there as an editorial intern for nearly a year. So really enjoyed it. But I had a chance to go work up on Capitol Hill on the Senate side, again, starting as a junior staffer. So joined what was the Senate Republican Policy Committee, a part of the Senate Republican elected leadership in 1989 and spent uh, until 2007 working in a variety of staff roles up there in Senate Republican leadership offices. In 2007, my then boss had self-terminated and left the Hill. I did as well. Went downtown in Washington, D.C., worked in the private sector for several years as an advocate for businesses and trade associations uh, and individuals in front of Congress, in front of the executive branch. Had a chance to go back up to work in the Senate as the Republican staff director for both the Senate Budget Committee, um, following previous service as a staff director for the Senate Rules Committee. So I was able to marry my knowledge there to help our, our majority uh, move priorities through Congress. Uh, I then managed to um, be in a position where uh, 
was asked to help support the transition efforts of the then candidate and ultimately president-elect Donald Trump mm-hmm. and had the opportunity to serve inside his administration for four years in a variety of roles, both at the Department of State, the White House, as well as the Millennium Challenge Corporation. When the president's first term concluded, I left and am currently working in the private sector as a consultant to businesses and trade associations again. So the yeah, the name American Spectator, I, I did a couple of writings for them when I was in college. So when that name popped up, um, kind of brought back memories for me personally. Oh, yeah. The American Spectator was the classic uh, athlete number two. We tried harder to uh, the number one national review. And I don't say that in a denigrating way. I say that both in an affectionate and respectful way because the spectator under the then editor, founder, publisher, Bob Tyrrell, was fantastic at both covering Washington, D.C., political and policy interests important to conservatives, uh, but not taking itself overly seriously um, and just having a ball with the work that it did. And, and I did too. It was a great introduction to significant conservative leaders in Washington, D.C. I still remember Stars in My Eyes, the first reception I was ever able to attend with a conservative figure that Bob invited me to, to come along and, and meet was with Pat Buchanan. Um, we scrub staff had the opportunity to stand in the background when President Reagan came to Bob's house for dinner. So those were just really neat, neat experiences and a unique way of both being introduced to Washington as well as the public policy fight of conservative intellectuals against the prevailing liberal dominated both media, but also kind of the mindset of Washington, D.C. back then. All right. So the first standard question I'm going to ask you is, how do you define character? Well, that's a great question. And for me, character is really the work that, that people do to define elements of the, the faculties of their soul. This, this answer is going to be predominated by my Catholic upbringing. So foreshadowing, forewarning for everybody listening. But really what character is to me is this effort of applying your intellect, your knowledge, your development of, of your own integrity, your observations of others, how you deal with challenges thrown your way, all build a perspective infused by your faith and underlined by an appreciation of your emotion and also a culturing of, of being constantly in control of your emotions to really represent and hopefully act upon the key ideals taught to you um, as Catholic kid in grade school, uh, examples of great people you've seen in life, whether it's in your family, with your parents, at school when you're a kid, in the public policy arena, in my case, media, um, dealing with fellow staffers in the Senate, the House, the White House, dealing with members of Congress and presidents uh, and foreign leaders, all looking to, to see and learn from developing this caliber of, of focus 
to ensure that you are providing the sort of appropriate critical faculties when tough questions come your way and coming to an answer, hopefully that's consistent with the work you've done on your self-improvement with that, that spiritual aspect of representing not just your faith, but what you were provided with uh, a conception and at birth of, of a soul, and then practicing that as best you can in your private life and in your public life, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes driving home at night, uh, rearing where you made mistakes or you gave, gave way to uh, an emotional moment or did not calibrate your response appropriately or fell short in your expectation and trying to learn from that to do a better job the next day. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, the second standard question, do you have a story of witnessing either in person or in history somebody who was a true phoenix, someone that was a role model leading by example and making the world a better place? So I, I do, and thank you very much for that question. In 2006, the, the fall of 2006, a scandal erupted in the House of Representatives where it was alleged that a leading House Republican had dealt inappropriately with House pages and had apparently harassed them by email and text. Now, these were claims, but there was no evidence available to support and substantiate these claims by individuals who had either witnessed this, thought they had been privy to emails and text, or in some cases were the individuals who had received these emails or texts. Inside the House, there's a significant administrative structure where at the end of the day, the electronic material uh, is retained and accessible. Um, so in this instance, you would be able to review these claims and uh, judge whether or not were material because truly there were facts, texts, emails preserved. There was one individual on the administrative side of the house who had the ability to gather this information together and present it to his superiors, uh, which would ultimately go public. And he was very explicitly threatened oh, by wow. Were he to do so, this decision that he would take would result in potentially dismissal, um, a, an effort to ensure that in essence, he would never work in this town again. Oh, wow. That's... That was a struggle for him. Um, and um, he looked deep within his soul and his character. And in the face of these threats, unflinchingly shared the information directly with his superiors and the public, ultimately, that indeed these texts and emails have been sent. And no matter the threatened damage to him and his career and his reputation and the obvious impact it had in a political environment on efforts by congressional Republicans to retain the majority, 
he believed he the right decision and took the right action. That's an example that sticks in my mind constantly and repeatedly that somebody who in an unanticipated way, in a completely unexpected moment, nevertheless had the integrity and the character to step forward and do the right thing. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people are missing these days. So the um, third question I I want to ask you is, if you could share a moment that stands out in your mind, is is there something big or even the slightest gesture that was a transformative Phoenix moment, one where you know you had a significant impact on an individual's life or a group of people? So my answer is driven somewhat by the, the cognizant fact that you never know the impact you will have on an individual or a group's life. Maybe someday in the future, you might run across somebody who will say, remember when you said X or you did Y or you comforted me for Z or you encouraged me for A. That always stuck with me and I never forgot it. But I have to say one example that I have isn't actually about me. It's about President Trump. Um, and it's something that was really impactful to a group of people and really incredibly reinforcing to me about the appreciation I have for his character. As you know, during his tenure, during his first term, there were several significant mass shootings that occurred in the United States. I remember those to this day. Yeah, and terrible instances of lives cut short and families desperately and damagingly affected. And they look at moments like that for comfort and reassurance from people in their community, but ultimately national leaders in Washington, D.C. As I think we're all aware, there's a stereotype about President Trump and a claim amongst uh, many prominent people in media and academia and the like that President Trump was an uncaring, thoughtless, heedless individual who focused solely on himself to the, to the demerit uh, of everybody else in the United States. Nothing to be further from the truth. And I certainly saw that in action when he would take the time to meet with these family members, either in small groups or in large groups or even individually, to hear them out, to express with them his shared grief with them, his knowledge about children, or spouses, parents, been wounded or killed was amazing. Everything stuck in his head, sticks in his head. And that he was not just spending time with them so that nobody would ever complain. He didn't spend time with them, but both it's demonstrated caring and concern and that their priorities or what could be done either at the national level with his bully pulpit, with his administration or inside Congress 
was something that he made sure he spent time on and that we in his administration spent time on. And I remember when, when a group and he finally broke, he spent much more time with them than, than was scheduled on, on his calendar. And they were very surprised with that. And as they walked out, one, one, uh, young lady turned to me and of course, very emotional and I was too. This is, these, these are never easy conversations to have. Um, but the tears streaming down her face said, even in this moment of of terrible grief, how appreciative she was that the president respected her enough and her dead relative to take the time to ask after her, ask after her family. And that the, the request from her, he keep family in his thoughts, in his prayers, and at the forefront of his actions, and so clearly been followed through upon. It was, as I said, incredibly moving, but also a really great example of not just a presidency and a president standing in stark contrast to the stereotypes in public, but a true example of a human being who reached above and beyond and really demonstrated deep example of character and integrity and humanity um, that was incredibly meaningful to them and meaningful to me as well. It's a great example that continue to encourage me to do my job uh, and to serve my role in ways that best I could, tapping into those core concepts of uh, what really built my character um, and, and, as I say, hardened in the work that I did on his behalf while serving in his first term at the White House. Per- All right. So, um, keyword respect. And that leads me to my first question that I'm going to ask you. Respect yeah. doesn't seem to be a real priority for people these days. They're being incredibly vicious with each other just because of differing political beliefs. And with 26 years of political experience on your resume, how do you think we can rekindle the trait and lost art of respect today? Well, I appreciate that question. And it is one that is very searching as well as incredibly revelatory, reflecting, yes, the, the society and the culture in which we live. Again, for better or for worse, every day, I try to model respect. I'm not always successful at it, but I try to model that. So you marry an intellectual effort to understand your point of view and, and with confidence be able to advocate your point of view with an appreciation of the perspective and views of others who may not always agree with you. And that rather giving prey to the temptation to fence and to find the harshest, most aggressive, most deeply divisive way to put your perspective forward and, and advocate for what you believe and think while tearing down what other side thinks and believes 
but instead looked for places where there is overlap or commonality. And if you can't find that, nevertheless, not giving prey to that easy outlet of expressing your anger or frustration, even in moments where you are being vilely mistreated, but instead attempt as best you can to rise above those those moments, um, persevere, confident in the fact that you have the right of the argument and ultimately the right in the fight because you are modeling such an essential aspect of how to go about successfully doing your work. And I have to say that in my work and in my experience, certainly modeling this this way of, of doing your work um, has been helpful in both drawing my character, but also ultimately attempting to, to drive the safer space where people can work with each other, even if they disagree on some of the fundamentals, which is a core responsibility that I've had either on Capitol Hill or working inside uh, the first term of the Trump administration. Um, you've got to find those ways and those places where you can work together. And part exactly. of doing that is how you, you command and control yourself. I couldn't agree with you more. So moving on to responsibility, and this is a big one, from being a commissioner on religious freedom to being in the State Department, working on Capitol Hill with big-name U.S. senators, to advocating for human rights and democracy in the State Department, you've had over 26 years of political experience on your resume, some big responsibilities. One of those roles being policy and communications director for the Senate Republican Policy Committee. And you served as chief of staff and or deputy chief of staff for senators such as Don Nichols from Oklahoma and Bill Frist of Tennessee, just to name a few. Tell me about some of the responsibilities you've took over the years. Well, thanks for that question as well. And I suppose looking back on it, um, the career, which I hope is not concluded yet, uh, I think the, the way I kind of proceeded is initially when I came to Capitol Hill, I was fascinated with how the place worked, what the rules stated, what informally actually went on. Right. How the Senate's internal operations unfolded, what the House did. So, uh, and, and clearly ultimately in interaction with the executive branch. So process was the first thing that I spent a lot of time on. I wanted to understand rules, the precedents, the, the formal and informal ways of operating as best I could. Then from there, I built an interest and a, and a set of responsibilities on policy. So whether it was uh, serving for a time as an economist with responsibility for attempting to understand what was going on in the macro economy to banking and housing and urban development to understanding um, the end of the Cold War and providing 
assistance on the foreign policy front, really diving deep on the policy to policy portfolio to understand and provide creative solutions from a conservative perspective to members up on the Hill. You did point out, and I have spent a significant amount of time over my career working with the media. So right. how do you go from a circumstance where conservatism is cabined off, attempted to be cabined off, cabined off from popular society, the intellectual world, and our perspective is not even granted a hearing in the media to now ultimately robust back and forth with a lot of conservative ideas on the table every day. Part of that work I did was in conjunction with the press corps, both on Capitol Hill, downtown, ultimately with the White House, uh, fearlessly and confidently explaining our perspective, our point of view, and pointing out challenges and potential flaws of the other side, but also trying to teach reporters and those truly interested why it is that conservatives think a certain way or conservatism has come to certain conclusions. Sometimes I was successful, sometimes I was not. But by modeling respect, hopefully I was able to have a better crack at explaining our perspective. Then as my career progressed, there's a whole political component that enters uh, enters into it. How are you dealing with trying to elect more Republicans to the Senate and the How are you supporting campaigns at the presidential level as they are trying to, to be successful at the election box every four years? How do you work with the RNC? How do you work with state parties? How do you work with politically oriented stakeholders all throughout town and throughout the country. So that became really interesting. And then the last part is people. As my career progressed and I became more and more responsible for management, then how do you recruit talent? How do you teach talent? How do you retain talent? How do you develop staff so that they are ready ultimately to replace you and or go off and be significant leaders in their own right. There's where I found some of my most enjoyable psychic income of the job that I find people or or my boss gives me great people to work with, and they're able to grow professionally and, and do an even greater job, partly as a result of the work that I do as their chief of staff, as their staff director, as the leader of an office, wow, that's really great. I know I've made a contribution to their lives and a contribution, hopefully, to the greater set of causes that that we serve here on the Republican side, on the conservative side. So those are kind of the, the five areas where I think I've spent a significant amount of time here during, during my service here in Washington, D.C. Well, you have a big, you have a big resume, that's for sure. And it's it's huge. That's all I got to say. Well, look, uh, my mom always used to joke, Eric, you've got a lot of jobs on your resume, but why can't you keep a job? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had a lot of great bosses along the way. They will look at me along the way and say, hey, Eric, you, you want some more challenges? Or I've got this problem. Can you handle it? And I love that. And uh, that still happens to this day. So that's one of the reasons for all those entries, Matt. Great story. So 
let's move on to fairness. National Journal, okay. which, by the way, is owned by the Atlantic Magazine. Not a lot. I don't think a lot of people. I don't think a lot of our listeners know about this source. Build you as having promoted business interests as staffer and lobbyist through work on deregulation, tax breaks, and trade. For example, you're the staff author of on the of the Congressional Review Act, uh, part of the Small Business Regulatory Enforcement Fairness Act that empowers Congress to review and overrule burdensome regulations issued by government agencies. How does fairness in this case tie into that legislation? Well, I appreciate that question because at its core, the Congressional Review Act is truly about fairness. Now, in fairness, I need to start by saying I was one of several staff authors who worked on the legislation as we went through the House, the Senate, ultimately got it written and signed into law by President Bill Clinton. And together, on a bipartisan basis, by the way, uh, a lot of staff provided contribution, input, and ultimately have seen, I think, with some satisfaction, the results over the past uh, decades, because, as I said, it was about fairness. At that point in, in uh, how the executive branch worked, they would put out a draft regulation. It could have significant economic impact and consequences for how businesses operate, how people could be employed and stay employed. Uh, but there was no venue that individuals, businesses, corporations, trade associations could go to to get the regulation undone if it was truly damaging. So through a lot of effort, a lot of conversation, a lot of negotiation, a lot of collaboration with, as I said, a lot of staff and a lot of members on a bipartisan basis, we came up with a piece of legislation that essentially says, look, if the executive branch puts out a regulation, Congress has a chance to actually stop that regulation, to turn it off, to take it off the regulatory books potentially forever. And as a recourse, it has been pretty successful. After all, uh, over the course of its existence since 1996, 18 different specific regulations have been undone under the Congressional Review Act. But the Congressional Review Act also served another purpose. Because it is a tool that Congress can use, and it can use unimpeded by all the obstructionist tactics that, that apply to most other legislation, it can be a check on agencies and departments going too far with their regulation because there's always right. the potentiality that a Congress could step forward and it might be a little difficult to, to get to a veto override point, but nevertheless, be able to say, look, administration, that's wrong. We want that off the books. If you're not going to sign this, you got to negotiate with us. And it's also had that salutary effect, too, of keeping agencies and departments from sometimes going too far and providing the opportunity for the executive branch and the legislative branch to see if there's a path forward that's less than something that might be catastrophic or kind of like damaging to a business or to a sector of the economy uh, in ways that um, that are incredibly um, damaging. You know, under the Constitution, 
every American has the right to, to find redress for their grievances. You can do that in the courts. You can do that through Congress, but it's sometimes hard to do that with the executive branch. And the Congressional Review Act was a way to make sure that people had a crack at redress. And as I say, ultimately fairness in the regulatory process. And I'm very glad that we were able to pass a Congressional Review Act. And again, courtesy of a great boss at the time being asked to collaborate with so many brilliant staff and ultimately bringing that into statute. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that I gotta say that was, um, that was a great story. I really appreciate you telling that story. So let's move on to trustworthiness. Correct me if I'm wrong, but former Montana Senator Max Baucus once considered you, quote, very intelligent, gracious, and straight, unquote, and said you were someone he trusted. How do you build that trust among your constituents as well as your family and friends? Well, I think you start and end by always trying to keep your word. Now, implicit in trying to keep your word, and as best I can think of, I've worked pretty hard and hopefully mostly successfully over over the years to actually keep my word. But implicit in keeping your word is trying to make sure that before you give your word, you know your views, your perspectives, and ultimately what you're willing to do. And to the best of your, your ability, understand the persons who's sitting across the table from you, their view, their perspective, what they're able to ultimately deliver if and when you can arrive at an arrangement. This means you've got to be very self-aware and conscious of the need to know uh, on your side. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time over, over the years, look, again, working with a lot of great members and staff, learning a lot about a lot of issues. Uh, I never anticipated I would, but that body of knowledge combined with a, a political philosophy and ultimately a goal to, if I can either representing an individual member, an entire chamber or a whole administration, say, we can do this and negotiate the this with somebody across the table whose policies I understand, whose motivations to me are clear, and whose confidence and strength in their ability to deliver is clear, then at the end of the day, any agreement we made should be able to be followed through upon in a way that lends value to both of us as individuals who can keep their word and deliver results. Now, like I say, when I go home every day, I review give my day's work, where I've fallen short, where I might not have been able to, to be as successful as I could and figure out how I could do better the next day. That applies here to, to coming to agreement as well. Um, and there are moments where, you know, I might have gone too far um, or have been underinformed um, or been too quick with uh, a flip assurance of, yeah, we can do that, uh, especially when I was younger. And I realized pretty early on in my career that 
if you're representing an individual or a group of senators or uh, ultimately an entire United States Senate, or as I said, the entire uh, first term of Trump administration, then by gosh, you need to be very careful with your words. And that um, part of taking care with your words is being able to deliver. So hopefully part of that was uh, why Senator Baucus has said that uh, back then and why others have said that over the years, because I want to make sure that at the end of the day, whoever I'm working with, whatever deal we arrange at, I'm able to follow through and keep my word um, in a way that enhances our trust and builds the opportunity to work together in the future. Um, because Congress, nothing else, teaches a lot of interesting lessons, one of which is somebody who's your opponent today may be on your side tomorrow. And one of the ways to get them on your side and keep them on your side is to be able to keep your word. One of the most important things to learn, not just in politics, but in society as a whole. And what I got to say is, um, there's a lot I took from your words. That's all I got to say. Well, you're great to say that, but I'm sure uh, you're a model of integrity and character. And to your point, these sorts of uh, callings to us don't just apply in the halls of Congress, inside politics, but across all walks of life. And some of our most noteworthy examples of uh, men and women of character, of women and men of integrity, of individuals who keep, keep their word, uh, exist for and outside politics, uh, and we are all the better for it. Yeah, we, we definitely are. So let's move on to Karen. Would you say advocating for human rights and democracy would be a good definition of caring in the case of your most recent role in the State Department? Yes, I would. And I would say that because part of the value proposition in the United States is the face that we present to the world and the United States perspective on how to care for the most challenged and, and the least among us. And that involves not just the reflexive, programmatic monies or uh, uh, operations internationally that, that you see, which we all, as Americans, more importantly, as human beings, support. Right, So there's a disaster in a country or a terrible genocide committed in another. And we all believe quite firmly and very strongly that there's a role to play for the United States in ensuring that a humanitarian response is appropriate, that people are receiving aid uh, and assistance, and that at the end of the day, the United States is standing strong with its commitment to look perpetrators in the eye, violating human rights, call them to account, demand that there be improvement and work aggressively, uh, both directly with the country as well as other like-minded countries um, to ensure that individuals and regimes and autocracies are called to account. But under the, the first term of the Trump administration, we worked hard at the direction of, of Secretary Pompeo to examine closely with 
was real rigor. The first principles, the roots of why the United States plays such a significant role in standing up on behalf of human rights around the world. And what grounds that work and that perspective of thinking? Uh, Secretary Pompeo, Professor Marianne Glendon, who had served as ambassador to Holy See, um, worked hard with a commission and a collaboration to put forward a perspective on the root, rootedness of America's perspective on human rights and the way that we have seen human rights as a country and how we work as uh, a, a nation in the international arena around the world on behalf of rights. And um, to think through very thoughtfully that rights aren't a hierarchy, nor are rights um, to just be reflexively um, assumed and, uh, and kind of hung on the edifice of, of the United States foreign policy, but instead really need to be rooted firmly in the perspective of the United States or, or real uh, inspired aspects of our founding. And the real leading role that we have played by example and through action on behalf of, of individuals and minority groups um, and threatened and, you know, genocided against um, cohorts all around the world and do that in a way that that works well and finds significant support amongst all aspects of American society in the 21st century. So that's a long way of saying I really commend people to read uh, Professor Glendon's uh, commission report from the summer of 2020, where she, at the instruction of Secretary Pompeo, really looked hard and long at the history and the historicity of human rights in United States foreign policy. And I think refreshed, revived, and, and re-challenged all of us as Americans, and certainly me serving at the State Department, about our mission, our calling, our cause, why we were there doing the work we were doing. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I might check that out sometime. So um, that that kind that pretty much um, I'm going to follow that up with something similar. It's a question about empathy, and that definitely ties into the answer you gave me. But before I do, I'm going to ask you about citizenship. What does it mean to you, with such a long resume of public service? to be a good citizen? Well, part of what mean, what good citizenship means to me is a willingness to serve. Serve in roles and in ways that aren't always on the front pages or part of the lead tweets, but really help ensure that your philosophical perspective, your responsibilities to a president, a senator, uh, political leadership, what, whatever, um, are able to be followed through upon and successfully 
advocated because the instrumentalities that are available to support politicians or political appointees um, are working at their optimum level. And that gets back to my interest in process, first on the Hill and then ultimately inside of the executive branch. How can you, in a willingness to serve, find ways to step forward and rather than go for an elective office or high-ranking appointed office, find those places where so many others will have the opportunity to be successful by virtue of the contribution that you made. That's a lesson that I learned along the way on the Hill from some really meaningful and, and personally very influential members and something that's imprinted on me in a lot of places that I've been here over the years. Quite, quite amazing stuff. So, um, finally, let's, let's go, let's move on to empathy. And, uh, this especially ties into the previous question I asked you about caring. During your time in the State Department, you saw some human rights violations that anybody should find despicable. More specifically, suppressed ethnic groups in Southeast Asia and Africa. How do you empathize with these people suffering from these disturbing human rights problems? It's a great question, and I appreciate you asking it. And you're right. You've seen significant front-page examples of genocide being committed against the Uyghurs and the Rohingya in Burma um, to groups of people around the world for whom there will never be a front-page story. And for me, demonstrating empathy, besides it being part of that maturation of how to build your character, uh, breaks down into a few key elements. First, it's the calling that you must follow through upon to listen. Look, we're Americans. We always think we, we have an answer, right? Right. We'll spend more money. We have another program. We will get you to a, a safer space. We will confront the perpetrators. And we're going to do all that. Don't get me wrong. But so many people have such significantly affecting stories that they need to share. And in their suffering and their their shunning, in many cases, because there are a lot of countries who turn their back on these issues and never, ever want to confront them. Right. Including hosting populations that have fled from other countries and other places around the world and treating them with hostility and contempt. Uh, that they don't have a place to go to, to share. They don't have a place to go to, as we mentioned earlier, seek redress. And so the first constituent element is being willing to listen, to sit and hear. And not just hear, yeah, 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 but hear fully, completely, with total presence. And that's not something I do with perfection. I know, again, I've got a lot of faults in that area, but 
really try to model and emulate some of what I've, I've seen from others much better at this than me. It's possible you will never see these people again. Right. But what they're telling you and how it fits into your perspective of, of ultimately playing a role can't be forgotten. I had a former boss who, after every meeting with any individual, had written their name down, a set of personal characteristics at what he had been told or what he'd heard from that individual. It was an incredible level of discipline, which I totally respect and I attempted to, to uh, model uh, over the course of my time in the executive branch. Um, not, not very successfully, but in a way, try to make sure I don't forget and that I can learn from as I go back to my job. Then you try to find where it is ultimately that you're going to be able to help. I talked earlier about trying to find roles and responsibilities where I can make sure that by successful operation there, so many more people will be able to be successful. When it comes to helping tormented individuals or communities internationally, help can be many different tools. And we've got a lot of programming, a lot of spending, but that's not always appropriate. In many cases, it's actually counterproductive. As we talked about earlier, what is the local community and the host government doing? What is the international community doing? What is the private sector, the so-called non-governmental organizations doing? Right. Where is it ultimately that we can harness the convening power and the direct authority of the United States, but in ways that grow support and ensure at the end of the day, individuals will be able and, and communities will be able to be assisted. And then ultimately, you try to blend those things together to, to lead. And it's not always me as an individual who leads, but especially at the State Department, it is the United States which leads. But leading again is not just the latest program or the latest appropriations. Leading is about ensuring at, amongst other things, is about ensuring at the end of the day that care when you listen is actually being followed through upon. And some of the most satisfying moments at the State Department was being able to see leaders at the department or out in embassies ensuring that at USAID, ensuring that the appropriate types of care and the appropriate types of reaction were meeting the moment of the challenge of an affected individual or a damaged community. And again, that's hopefully a lesson I can take forward as I continue to do my work in Washington. Right. Yeah, that's some pretty inspiring stuff that you gave me. Before we close, please share with us some thoughts on how we can bring character back into our culture and in our politics. Well, you you asked one of the biggest questions of all of all. And again, thank you very much for the opportunity to have this conversation today. I, I do really appreciate it. I think in terms of kind of this this summary question, a couple of aspects 
uh, occur to me. First, I believe that you need to model the appropriate behavior as best you can. This character and action, as, as you framed it, needs to be exampled in what people do every day, wherever they are, however they work, um, on behalf of whatever it is that they're doing. Um, because I do think modeling invites repeating by others and can be a successful counterpoint over time to some of the coarsening of the culture that we're all watching. Second, sometimes there's no stronger voice than the quiet encouragement to others who you see as struggling in a moment or being smaller or larger examples of the sort of uh, modeling of, of character that you're you're trying to do yourself, um, because I think that sort of positive reinforcement is something that isn't forgotten um, and can serve as reinforcement at moments where perhaps the examples predominate the other way. Um, and I think things like this, where you have a great public discussion about appropriate character and how best to think through of, of acting with character and in character um, as human beings uh, and at moments as Christian, as Catholic human beings is, is really important. And that's why the opportunity to have this conversation, I really welcome. And again, my appreciation to you. And then the last is, I think, building culture of character would be a great mission for those who wonder at moments whether or not they're the only one. Where do I find examples? How do I build a successful blend of the soul I've been given, the intellect I've been blessed with, the emotions that I have, the community in which I live, the professional responsibilities I have, and the rich opportunity of, of life ahead of me. And to the extent that, that people with these common interests are interested in not just discussing in public, but thinking about ways to build a culture of character and counterpoint to the culture of coarseness that we deal with, that would be really exciting to see. And again, I think have significant benefits in the future for a lot of people that we don't even know today um, who will be born far in the future. So anyway, those are kind of my thoughts off the top of my head um, for what is a great concluding question that you have, Matt. All right. Eric, you we're, we're about out of time, but um, it was a great and insightful conversation that I've had with you. Eric Ewan, thank you for joining us today. Matt, thanks for having me, and thanks to all your listeners for tuning in. I very much appreciate it. Yep, it was an honor and a privilege to be able to speak with you. Have a good day. To learn more about the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom, visit their website at uscirf.com. 
www.phoenixchildrensbook.gov. And for info about our foundation, as well as both the Phoenix Children's Book series and curriculum, visit our website at 7degreesofchange.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Matthew J. Norcross, and always remember, everyone can be a phoenix.